When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Burned by Books, a podcast for writers and readers searching for a space to share our favorite books and to talk about the meaning they bring into the world. We feature interviews with exciting new writers and with the bookstore owners that bring those books to us. I'm your host, Chris Holmes. This is the last of our summer reading episodes, and as the days get shorter and the evenings carry a chill, I'm already longing for the feelings of early summer. Luckily, my interview this week is with one of the most inventive and exciting writers working today, Eden Lepucky. We'll be talking about her sudden rise to fame with her first novel, California, and about the ways in which not knowing the rules of a genre can be liberating. Eden recommends a great California writer for you to discover, and we talk about her most recent project, Mothers Before, a collection of essays by women writers about their mothers before children. Before my interview with Eden, I've got a review of the long-awaited and much-vaunted debut by Raven Leilani, the novel Luster. Let's start the show. Welcome back to Burn by Books. What is a young black woman allowed to desire? This is the question at the heart of Luster, Raven Lilani's luminous, groundbreaking novel of contemporary city life and the limits placed on the livelihood and loves of a black woman trying to find joy and stability. When the advanced promotional materials for this novel first started making the rounds, it was Zadie Smith's blurb that caused the real stir. Quote, exacting, hilarious, and deadly, a writer of exhilarating freedom and daring. 
was that emphasis on deadly as a pairing with hilarious that caught my attention. Zadie does not plaster herself across the new releases shelves. She's a modest and moderated blurber. This was sufficiently effusive to send me running for an advanced reader copy, which I would not get my hands on despite significant groveling. So like everyone else without an FSG hookup, I waited. Upon arrival, the physical existence of this book is a marvel, an iridescent rainbow cascade, seemingly spray-painted through the lustrous hair and down the shoulder of a black woman in profile. It is red like cherry sunset and then suddenly yellow, fading into green, distorting into blue-black. Gretchen Achilles, the designer, needs a raise. It is a misnomer to call this novel a debut. It feels way too assured and daring and expert in its deployment of dialogue and description to set it in contrast to so-called other debuts. It would be cavalier and cruel to put other newly published authors in the same category with a work they would cut off their own fingers to have written. There's star quality here. Luster's through-line is the story of Edie, an artist of great passions and middling confidence, whose day job in publishing is a combination of basic competence and hilarious irresponsibility. She has an affair with a middle-aged white guy and an openish marriage. It's the ish part that makes things interesting, as the relationship grows more painfully fascinating with each new revelation about the affair and with our introduction to the daily cuts and bruises of paycheck-to-paycheck living in a racist world. The wife in the openish marriage, Rebecca, is a coroner, brutally efficient and fearless, and her adopted daughter, Akila, will come to have a meaningful relationship with Edie as a result of a series of disasters in Edie's life. The first thing you notice is the voice, the swagger of it. Take the opening paragraph, the illicitness and humor, the banality and careful cultivation of desire interact in a way that feels uncomfortable and funny and demanding of our full attention. We jump into it in medias race. Quote, the first time we have sex, we are both fully clothed at our desks during working hours, bathed in blue computer light. He is uptown processing a new bundle of microfiche, and I am downtown handling corrections for a new Labrador detective manuscript. He tells me what he ate for lunch and asks if I can manage to take off my underwear in my cubicle without anyone noticing. His messages come with impeccable punctuation. He is fond of words like taste and spread. The empty text field is full of possibilities. The second thing that strikes is that Raven Leilani appears not to have been given the copy of cliched metaphors that the rest of the writing world, myself included, have relied upon since birth. Nearly every phrase feels fresh in her hands. Here she describes prepping for a first in-person date with a man she's been virtually flirting with. Quote, you are a desirable woman. You are not a dozen gerbils in a skin casing. Sex is everywhere in this novel, but, is in, but it is infused with the precariousness of young black life 
and the complications of modern love. Sex is often bleak and sometimes violent, riding the line between kink and the the manifestations of a white supremacist culture's brutality meted out on the bodies of black people. I'll read a particularly evocative passage, full of the quickness of Edie's thinking, but also the weight of the fear of everyday living, made visceral by the promise and peril of sex. Quote, On the third date, I'm sure we're going to have sex. I shave everywhere, take a straight razor to my arms and legs, hold the blade at 30 degrees as a brownout courses through my neighborhood. And when I arrive at the clinic, he kisses my neck and whispers in my ear, and we both get tested for STDs. The fluorescence washes him out, but on this occasion, his neurosis is full bleed. And he tells me he does not like hospitals because they smell like urine and synthetic gardenias. And also he is terrified of dying. And theoretically, so am I. But theoretically, what if I'm not? Though saying this out loud is ungenerous. So I tell him, yes, living is definitely what I want to keep doing. It has been great so far. But mostly I'm hoping I don't have chlamydia, and so I miss a great deal of what he tells me about his fear of death, and I notice a pamphlet with a white baby on it. And after our tests come back clean, and we go for burgers, I don't eat anything because I want to have sex. But I'm still thinking about the baby, about the potential softness of its head, and I'm thinking about the abortion, this abortion I had at 16. His wife calls him, and he leaves because it is July 3rd. Barbecue prep needs to be done, and one of the rules is that if she calls, he has to go. I want to save some major plot points for you to be surprised by, but the joy and wonder of this novel is getting to spend time in the frantic and beautiful mind of Edie. As much as I fretted for her limited and often misguided choices, I already miss her. This is one of the great novels of 2020 so far, and I expect Raven Leilani has only just begun to astonish us. Next up, my interview with Eden Lepucky, author of California, Woman Number 17, and Mothers Before. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Eden Lepucky to the podcast. Eden is the author of two highly regarded novels, California, the story of a couple's life in and out of society after an apocalypse, and Woman Number 17, a Washington Post book of the year, the Hitchcockian tale of a recently separated mother who engages the services of a young nanny, only to have both of their secret lives revealed with awful clarity. Most recently, she is the editor of Mothers Before, a collection of micro-essays accompanied by photos written by contemporary women writers about their mothers before children. She is a well-known editor and contributor for the literary website The Millions. Welcome, Eden Lepucky. 
Thank you for having me. I'm very, I'm, I kind of want to steal that bio. You've so succinctly described my books. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Um, it is a real pleasure to have you here, and we're having you up very early in California, so I'm especially grateful that you're, you're willing to be up in the early hours. Uh, well, as you know, there's no choice, really. I was going to be up either way, <laughs> but I'm happy to be talking to you instead of doing something else. <laughs> Well, I'm going to start off and just ask how you're holding up. I know this is the like de rigueur question right now, but it's a it's a real one. And wondering what your your work and family life has been like under quarantine, and especially whether you've been reading anything that you find comforting or at least adequately distracting. Mm. It's funny. I feel like everyone who isn't you know, afraid about paying their rent or, you know, hasn't known, has anyone close to them as COVID, you always have to couch everything with, I'm so lucky. I feel very fortunate, um, which I do feel, and I am very fortunate and we're all healthy here and doing okay. And my husband's job is financially stable and I'm a writer, so I can still do that. So we're doing fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's hard. I have three. We have three kids. They're they're supposed to start school tomorrow, and they will. Oh my gosh! Theaters, and that's a little depressing. Um, but you know, we're mostly okay. Uh, there's a little, just a, sort of the relentlessness of parenting right now. Mm -hmm. um, also coupled with kind of like the joys of becoming this little microcosm and kind of exploring our neighborhood and spending a lot of time in the yard, the backyard, the deck that we have, um, cooking a lot. Like those, those pleasures that are here that we're all kind of grasping for are real. Um, and I have been reading quite a bit. Everyone is saying, you know, I, all I can do is look at my phone and I do look at my phone a lot. Um, but I find reading like always to be just like what I need to mm -hmm. feel right and to like get some kind of escape and, the pleasure of kind of like just falling into a book is still right at my right, right there for me um, as it always is, which I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. Me too. I mean, it's, it's the saving grace for me right now is that there are, are books at hand and mm -hmm. that when, when nothing else seems to be going right in the world, there are still people producing this stuff. It's, it's coming out and it's coming out in beautiful and new and exciting forms. Yeah. And it's funny. I actually am having a harder time focusing on television. Um, something about those narratives seem really flat to me. Um, or you just watch them and you think of all the things you can't do that you're seeing happen on the screen. But with books, I think maybe because you're more deeply in the consciousness of the characters, you really can just like transport yourself to that world more easily. I had that experience with this, what should be a delightful little movie that came out during quarantine, Palm Springs. I don't know if you oh, saw, yeah. if you saw it, <laughs> which I liked a lot, but I just kept thinking, okay, this is the day they live over and over again, but they get to go out, they get to socialize without social distance. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's many things. If it were, you know, filmed now, it would be just like you look your children directly in their eyes as they like smash a glass over and over and over again and don't go anywhere and don't go to weddings and don't see yeah. strange relatives all of the things that we would just be overjoyed to do right now I know. 
You can only think that when this ends, God willing, that we'll suddenly be like, oh my God, and now we can have awkward conversations with people at parties and have a <laughs> terrible time again. Yes! <laughs> uh, um, can't wait, can't wait. Yeah, I know. I mean, it seems crazy to wish it on ourselves, but we we <laughs> certainly do. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your first novel, California, mm-hmm. which was newly published when it became a symbol of a war between Hachette publishers and Amazon, when Amazon was refusing to carry Hachette titles until they relinquished full pricing control over their holdings. The battle was picked up by none other than Stephen Colbert, who championed your debut novel as a Hachette title that needed to be read. I wondered what it was like having your book skyrocket to bestseller status overnight. Uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> um, I, like, I mean, every writer that I know, you know, in my kind of cohort of literary fiction writers, I don't think any of us had ever kind of like cultivated a fan a fantasy quite like that one <laughs> or, uh, and a, a best sound. Like I, I never expected to be a best selling author. That wasn't, I wanted to be an author and I definitely wanted to win a fancy award that has mm-hmm. always been, it still is. I'm not going to lie. I would love to win a big time award and for suddenly to have that accolade, but I never was like, Oh, and then I'll be on the New York times bestseller list. I just, I just thought that was totally just not in my future. Um, and I had, I would say I had pretty modest expectations for California. I did not think it was going to win a big award. <laughs> um, I was hopeful that it would get, you know, nice reviews and it would, I would sort of gain a following of a small following of readers who would be excited to read whatever I could do next after that. And to sort of, I just wanted to people to get the book and to get me and my sensibility. So when this whole thing happened, it kind of like, blew my mind essentially. (laughs) Um, and I tried really hard just to enjoy it because I thought, well, what are the chances that, you know, a a late night talk show host would make, you know, catapult me into like the best zones. That just is never going to happen again. Um, and so I, and I, in the past when something good happens, I kind of unmake it with my brain. (laughs) I try to find a way to make it unpleasurable to myself and worry too much or, you know, feel guilty that it's happening or just have anxiety about it. But so I tried really hard just to live in the moment and I got to go on a show and it was really fun. Um, and just to be grateful because I just didn't think it was going to ever happen again. Did it feel like he had, uh, he had read your, your book properly? No, in fact, he did not read my book and was open about that. Sherman Alexi read my book, and he had asked Sherman Alexi to talk about a book on the show. Uh, And what was so funny is, like, the day before Sherman Alexi was going on, or a few days before, my publicist called and said, he's going to talk about your book and a picture book. And then, like, two hours later, she called back. She's like, actually, he's just going to talk about the picture book. So it had this sort of, like, whiplash. And then she called back again and was like, okay, he's only talking about your book now. Um. And I knew Sherman Alexi had read it. I did an event with him subsequently, and he read it very carefully. Um, but I knew from the start that Stephen Colbert didn't. So it's funny when people, you know, I had I would see comments that were like, he didn't even, Stephen Colbert didn't even read this book. Why should I? And I was like, yeah, why should you read it? <laughs> um, but, I mean, uh, Alexi did read it. So I felt like that was okay. And I, you know, Colbert's whole shtick with that show was that he was kind of like a clueless 
ignoramus. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it fit the bill to not have read anything. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the counterfactual of this story of California's rise is um, how an extraordinary example of early um, post-apocalyptic fiction became highbrow literary fiction, but might have languished as a well-reviewed novel that never sold very much. What's your take on how the condensing of publishing into a few monoliths allows so many great books to sort of slip through the cracks? Mm. I thought about this a lot. Um, one, I feel like I have, like I, like I said, I'm so grateful that California got this, the reception that it did and the sales that it got me. Um, it allowed me to sell my second book, which I honestly don't know if it would have sold otherwise because it was sort of a weird book that had kind of different genre elements and none of them at all, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, of course I have a little chip on my shoulder where it's like, you know, did people think, Oh, I was only successful because a random, random occurrence happened. Um, like if I had to sit on the merits of the book alone, what would have happened? And I don't know what would have happened because I didn't live that life. Um, but it has made me think about how, you have to have something so insane happen to have a successful book in some ways. Um, which made me a little bit, it was kind of both freeing and discouraging when, you know, I thought about, well, how the hell will I ever make another book successful? If I don't have Stephen Colbert telling everyone to buy it. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it was kind of freeing. Well, I was like, well, I'm not going to have that. So I can just like write whatever I want to write and see, who will be interested. Um, but because publishing has kind of, there are fewer and fewer publishers. Like now there's, they're not even top five anymore. The not top, but like the, the main big, big publishers, there's five. I think now there are four because Penguin Random House merged. Um, there are just fewer and fewer. I mean, just logistically, there are fewer and fewer places for, a writer's agent to take the book because once an editor at a publishing house passes, then the agent can't take it to another editor at that same publishing house. That publishing house is sort of closed to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just lessens the number of places that can take on your book. And they become, I think the publishing houses have become more risk averse in a lot of ways. Um, if you're a writer of color, I think you're even more further limited because they have certain expectations of what you will write. Um, and if you don't write what they think you're going to write, then you're kind of screwed also. Um, and I don't know, I feel like they end up publishing a lot, but very little of it is becoming what they hope it becomes, but it doesn't seem like they're doing all that much for any of the books. (laughs) Um, so lately I've just been a little bit like, Oh, what? what's going to happen to the publishing industry? How can it be shaken up so that we can get more interesting voices? There can be more playfulness, of course, with regard to the marketplace, but also how can we adjust the marketplace with the power of the publishing industry to make people interested in these different kinds of stories? And Um, and I feel like the, the conversation that's happening around writers of color and how exactly as you put it, the representational boxes that they're asked to stay entirely within in order to be noticed by these publishing houses is hopefully something that's going to be exploded and, and changed. 
And yes, and who knows if if there's enough momentum, but now more than any time in my adult memory feels like a different kind of drive and momentum toward that. Yes, yes. I think my husband and I for a long time called certain books vitamin books, which were books that were felt like the publishing industry was publishing because they needed they decided that they needed to show that they were like good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that they were very much like book report books in some way. And what and there's a lot of those books I do like to read, but I also felt like there's not enough books by people of color that are just like about people of color just being people and doing normally you know like regular life things they were always like idea books mm-hmm. um and i really do hope that we will now see just more books by all kinds of people so that it's not a deviation from the norm the norm being white do you know what i mean where it's right. just like okay there's this book about this relationship and they're black characters and we're getting more of those kind of books in the literary sphere because you know they've existed a long time in other genres um, but I want more of that kind of stuff in my life. Cause that's per- just selfishly what I want to be reading. I can only too. take so many vitamin books. <laughs> so I don't know if you've had a chance to read the book luster by Raven Leilani. Um, but it's the book that I'm, uh, offering a review for in this, um, podcast episode. And I found it to be extraordinary one, because it is, um, so ordinary in many ways. And it's, it's certainly extraordinary in the sense that we live inside this young woman's wonderful and wildly energetic thinking mind, but it so doesn't hold to any of the expectations or stereotypes or, um, vitamins that you referenced (laughs) before. Uh, and I just loved it. And I hope that it's the kind of book that now gets to have, um, fame and fortune and long life in the publishing industry. I haven't read it yet. I want to, everyone really likes it. Um, but yeah, that's exactly, I mean, that's the kind of book I want to read. And the fact that that book is doing so well, it's got great reviews and it's on the bestseller list, I think means that we will see more of those kinds of stories. Um, and I'm excited because that's good news for me personally as a reader. Yeah, no, it certainly, it bodes well for, for getting new kinds of things on our, on our nightstand tables. And it's vying, I think, for, you know, second and third on the New York Times uh, bestseller list with Mexican Gothic, which is this wonderful, um, just tearing apart of the, the English origins of the Gothic novel and, and putting them in Mexico City and in, in a time of um, glamour and deprivation in such a fun package i do you know it's funny that book it seems to me had a i don't that book i just started seeing all at once and it was already on the bestseller list when i saw that when i like i didn't have a big build for me in the way that lester did where i knew a lot of people had read it before it came out and i i was like ooh, i'm gonna have to check this one out this looks really good i recommend it it's it is great and and a combination of like beautifully written but so much a spooky page turner mm, juicy yeah and be, <laughs> So um, California, the state, uh, and specifically Southern California, looms large in most of your work to date. Woman number 17 is pointedly a novel of the Hollywood Hills, perhaps the most recognizable and most filmed neighborhood on the West Coast. 
You live in Los Angeles, and you've been an important figure in the writing scene there for some time now. Beyond its familiarity to you, what is the draw for the to the environment and cultural landscape of California? I, so I was born in L.A. I was born at home in Santa Monica. Um, and I do, I mean, I think a lot of people feel a particular pull to where they grew up, especially if you still live there. It's sort of this palimpsest of emotions when you go to different neighborhoods, you know, remembering what it was like when you were a child and what Mm -hmm. you were like and how you are now. And I experienced that kind of time travel a lot um, because LA is so big. So I don't get to my childhood neighborhoods that often, but when I do, I suddenly feel this kind of like surge of different emotions um, that is rich for writing. I think, um, I think maybe there's something in particular about LA because it does exist in the public imagination so strongly that it's interesting to be from a place that is consumed publicly, but privately is your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so though I'm interested in the ways that California and Los Angeles in particular are uh, like, they are true to stereotype in a lot of ways. And then of course they are not, um, or there's a lot more to that story. Um, so I just, like, I just read Samantha Irby's collection, the new one. Um, wow. No, thank you. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, and she has this funny essay about coming to LA to write for TV and all the things she talks about are so LA and so true about like whatever almond milk lattes and people doing astrology. And, but it was just like, and it was funny. I was laughing about it because I, she was right. Um, but it was also such a specific slice of LA and I, mm-hmm. and she wasn't here long enough and she's a comic essayist. So I'm not asking this of her, but it's like, but there's just so much more to the city and so much more to the state that I feel like as a native son, <laughs> of a, as a baby of California, I feel like I, it's my, almost my duty, almost my loyalty to, to sort of like unpack all of those myths about my home. Um, I don't know. And I just sort of a magical, weird place, especially LA. It's like so weird. There's so many weird people and the landscape is truly bizarre. The plant life alone is like, you could write three novels about. Um, so it just pulls me in this really strong way. So here I am. <laughs> the um, I feel like the burden for L.A. and New York as just, you know, cities that have been written about, filmed, viewed by everybody mm-hmm. in this country so many times before they have ever stepped foot in them is a big yeah. one. And I would think that having grown up there that you feel like maybe you have to take the mantle of like – proving wrong a lot of the the more unpleasant stereotypes about those places yeah and it's in- funny when i was in college i definitely felt that work i was i went to college uh in the late 90s early 2000s and if that was a time when la was not considered cool um and california was still not considered i feel like it just arose in a desirous place to live after i mean obviously people have always wanted to come to california for the weather and it's beautiful and all these things but when I was in college, Brooklyn was like the place that everybody wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was more than a few times engaged in conversations about how people in LA were really stupid and stereotyped and superficial. And it was all, you know, it was all about how you looked. And I just remember thinking, oh, I'm always on the defensive. And then I got older and moved back to LA and it was just sort of a 
interesting shift where I was like, in some ways they're right. <laughs> I've, I've never really been somewhere where there's so many good looking people, except maybe like <laughs> Paris. <laughs> they have those French, French jeans there. Um, but there's so many good looking people and there are certain neighborhoods where you're just like, this is just over the top ridiculous. Like I've gone to dinner with people from out of town and they're looking around and it's like they're on another planet and I barely notice it now. Um, so it's been a sort of shift in me where I sort of accept that the stereotypes about LA are in many ways true. Hmm. And then I have a knowing, a knowingness that, okay, those things are true, but there's also these myriad other things that people just have no idea about because they haven't lived it. Um, and that's the fun part of me being able to like show those worlds and to realize later in life that I had a really interesting upbringing that I didn't really even know was interesting until I left the place I had come from. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of fun too. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I'm sure as a writer, the ability to both portray California as it is and as it might be is a, yeah. is a big draw. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I love about California because it is recognizable uh, in many ways to anyone who's spent time in the lushness of California, but also um, is a vision of a California that we hope never is and a yeah. world that we hope isn't, um, but yes. that one that rests on that kind of bleeding edge of our imagination. Yeah. And it leads me to what I'm, uh, I guess, interested in thinking about is a, a subgenre of what I'd call the new apocalyptics, which are um, young writers drawn to the features of a genre that definitely predates them, but which they mutate and fuse into a style and voice more commonly associated with literary fiction, by which I mean a kind of care and attention to written language as art. In the 80s, there was seemingly a slew of good vampire novels and films that were suited to the pandemic of the AIDS crisis. And then the 90s and early aughts played with zombies as stand-ins for the mindless corporatism of late capitalism. And the last decade has seen the superb return of the apocalypse novel. California, I think of as an early marker of where we were going with literary apocalypse, anxieties about motherhood and family and the remnants of society. And it has been followed on by just excellent experiments with the genre, like Ling Ma's Severance and Megan Hunter's The End We Start From, and the now canonical Station Eleven. But why now? Why do you think it's at this moment that we're yearning for an end of everything? First of all, all the Severance, The End We Start From, and Station Eleven. I love all three of those books so much. Me too. Um, you know, now, right now that we're in the pandemic, I've been thinking about what is what is the literary tradition that's going to emerge from this. Oh, yeah. And I love how you you know what how what out of AIDS, the AIDS crisis comes vamp, vamp, the vampire story, which always comes back from the dead every you know hundred years or so, right? Mm -hmm. um, is it going to be stories of isolation? Is it going to be you know what is there the fear of disease? How is it going to come out in a in a literary form. Um, and so thinking back to what, why I felt compelled to write California. And at the time I didn't, I don't think I knew I just had this sort of, I was just playing pretend essentially. Hmm. Um, but I wanted to have, I wanted to have kids. 
Um, my husband and I did not have very much money. I was like working like four jobs, including being like an SAT tutor, like that, that those kind of jobs. Um, you know, we both had master's degrees. My husband had so much debt from that from his program, um, that there was like a precariousness to our lives that we wanted to move on and like, you know, become adults, quote unquote. And there was also fear of like, well, could we do that? Could we, you know, could we bring a child into this world if we ourselves had like a kind of unstable instability to our like financial lives? Um, and coupled with climate change fears, which were, at the time, you know, they've been growing for decades, obviously, but you know, my, my first son was born in 2011. So started really started to rise then. And, you know, now we're at like a scream, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think those things and, you know, the 2008 recession, um, I think all of that stuff was like in a swirl in me and in everybody culturally of just like, what is going to happen next? Can we continue on this, narrative path of like, oh, you will do all these things, you know, if you are educated and you come from, you know, middle class or above, you're sort of on that path, you know? And then it felt like a lot of us turned around and we're like, well, we don't, there's no, we, the dream of buying a house is just dead. Hmm. <laughs> um, the rising sea levels, you know, all this kind of stuff is just it makes it scary to think about like, what is adulthood going to be. So I think that's why all of these novels came to be. I think there was a real sense of precarity in our situations and that felt like a kind of end of the world. Um, and I think it blew up in the literary fiction sphere because so many of us, I think we all read all kinds of books growing up and into adulthood and that those genre walls were coming down and you see it all the time now where people are sort of like, oh, I'm writing a romance, but it's a epigrammatic Rachel Cuss style romance. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that makes any sense. Or I'm it just does. Now. Yeah, no, you're not. Um, did, did, it, did you feel any pressure about the taking up of, of parts of the genre? Did it feel like you would be buttonholing yourself or pigeonholing uh, yourself? I was pretty – I did not want to write this book. I was like – somebody else should write this, but I'm going to read it. It's going to be so good <laughs> because I felt like I didn't really read apocalyptic fiction. I didn't read a ton of science fiction. What I read was Margaret Atwood and all the like mm -hmm. that style. Um, so I really felt like I was not, it was inappropriate for me to write it. But then again, I didn't have a career. My first book didn't sell. And I was like, well, screw it. I'm going to write this book because this is the book I have in my brain. And I, I think my ignorance protected me hmm. because I hadn't read enough of the books to really know what tropes I was pulling on. I knew obviously broad strokes, but there are other ones that I didn't know. And so I sort of just was like, I'm in my own world. I'm creating this. Um, and that protected me from getting too paranoid about what traditions I was being a part of. Um, and I did it. I you know what's funny is I did it again with woman number 17 and I'm doing it now on the book I'm writing where I, there are elements from other genres that I have enjoyed, but I haven't read thoroughly the classics of that genre because that's not what I gravitate towards as a reader. I don't tend to like straight and I'm, there's nothing against any of those. It's just what I tend to read is something slightly askew that's kind of taking from those forms, but isn't the classic version. 
do you know a novel um, called The Last Werewolf? Because it's interesting what you're exactly what you're talking about was I can't remember the writer off the top of my ben, head. Is that Ben Percy? No, although his is you know of that it's same also a ilk. <laughs> yeah, and someone who I mean, well, I guess he's more now immersed in the both the history of the genre and the present of it. But I remember hearing the story of this this guy who wrote the Last Werewolf, who had written a number of well received but quite low-selling um, domestic novels, very much kind of classic novel-y things. And his editor was not excited about publishing another one of these. And this guy said off the cuff, like, well, what if I made it about a werewolf instead, but just did all the same things? And and the publisher took him very seriously and said, yeah, yeah, do that. Um, and he ended up writing, a, you know, a trilogy of I think incredibly good, playful things that work in the in the genre, but they, um, you know, he similarly had no kind of great background or super interest in the history of the genre, and maybe that's freeing. Maybe that allows you to kind of pick and choose a little bit more and not feel the weight of all that's come before you. I think so. And the and you know I'll I'll ask in, in a little bit about that next project, but I'm excited that it's another one that's gonna <laughs> gonna grab up a new genre. Oh lord! <laughs> I mean, your most recent um, work couldn't be more different in many ways um, from California, and yet shares interesting um, little sort of threads and connections. The beautiful Mothers Before um, asks women writers to imagine the lives of their mothers before children. The pictures included with these micro-essays are portraits that hint at every manner of potential and struggle, privilege and deprivation, and glamour and banality. Some of them really just took my breath away. What brought you to this kind of project, a very different sort of creative work? And what did you learn from the vast diversity of the responses you got? Well, first, thank you. <laughs> um, because I'm the editor, I feel like I can just wholeheartedly just love this book. Mm. <laughs> it's not wrapped up in my ego. I'm just like, <laughs> yes, all these pictures are amazing and the essays are great. Um, you know, it started as a publicity it started as publicity for woman number 17. <laughs> um, and you had that, an Instagram for it and still yes, do. Yeah. Yes. It's so bizarre. I'd never thought in a million years, one that I, Stephen Colbert would make me a bestseller and two that I would sell a book from an Instagram. That just seems bizarre. Um, but I, woman number 17 has an artist character who is asking for photos of people's mothers before they became mothers. And then she does an art project with them. And I thought it wouldn't it be fun to do a kind of publicity Instagram where I ask specifically women and non-binary people for photos of their mothers before they became mothers. Um, because woman number 17 is so much about constructing a female identity um, and playing with that and subverting that and thinking about, what you get from your own mother and how that shapes you. Um, so I started the Instagram with pictures of friends, mothers, and then slowly asked other people to submit. And it kind of just took on a life of its own. I, I, I didn't really do anything to advertise it. People just loved it. And I wasn't really surprised because from the moment I saw just my friend's photos, mother's photos, I was enthralled, you know, there were just great pictures that were like, I mean, they're just full of so much mystery and there's just so much just natural story to these images mm -hmm. that I think 
any human would be attracted to, like knowing more or wanting to know more and not being able to know more. Um, who's the Who's the author whose mother is in the most like fantastic ping pong pose? Oh, it's uh, Rachel Kong who wrote Goodbye Vitamin. <laughs> it's a. Uh, it is. It looks like she is in the Olympics, and she has a face of such seriousness and passion. And yeah. there's. It, it, no, no, it just looks it looks like a, a video still because there's so much like potential energy in the in the image. Yeah, mid smash is what Rachel Kong calls it. What's funny is she just emailed me that like, hey, hey, look at this funny picture. And then I was like, um, can I have this for my book? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing photographs. And then having some of them are, as you said in the intro, women, you know, contemporary writers. Some of them are what we were, my editor and I were calling, for lack of a better word, civilians. <laughs> um, <laughs> who were not writers, but, you know, everybody has an interesting story about their mother. Whether even people who have never met their mother have some interesting myth about them or the absence of their mother is really what's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, just There's just so much rich material there. Um And so I wrote an op-ed about it for the New York Times. And then my agent was like, we're making this a book. (laughs) I was like, okay. Um, And this was honestly one of the most enjoyable things I've ever gotten to work on. One, because I wasn't the writer. (laughs) So I got to like receive these beautiful, funny, heartbreaking, weird little essays from all kinds of people. And I wanted to kind of honor the honesty of them. So I was... I had did a light touch as far as editing because I wanted mm. it to feel almost like an oral history um, where you can hear the people, the, the daughter's voices as you're reading them. Um, and so it was kind of like this little gift that kept coming into my inbox. Where pop, here's a picture from Jennifer Egan's mother, who's <laughs> stunningly beautiful. And then this very thoughtful essay about her mother's looks and the lack of opportunities her mother got, for instance, um, and then getting to put them in an order that felt like intuitive. It was all really fun. And I never, cause I, you know, I never had done a project like that. The, um, the thing that also struck me is that the, the micro essays are really like kind of, uh, super short fiction in the way they operate. Some of them have these kind of dramatic turns in them. I forget the one that I uh, read just the other day where it's a, a lovely description of the picture. And then it says, you know, and these were the the two men that betrayed her. Um, and it just it sort of had this leaden thud to it. And there are a lot of them that have unexpected tonal shifts in them mm-hmm. that work wonderfully with the the visual image. Yeah, I take no credit (laughs) because I had said, I would like you to submit a micro essay. And then I remember writing, I probably didn't make up this term, but I just love the idea of these little pocket essays. And you could literally submit to me four lines or you could have up to two pages and how you interact with the photograph is totally your choice. And so it was really interesting. If you give a person kind of a broad parameter, how are they going to interpret that? I think was really it was exciting. It was exciting artistically for me to see kind of the opportunities that, that, that non-fictional length affords people. Well, they, they um, certainly, I should, try, I should try writing these. Well, I mean, it made me very attracted to the form 
Um, the, the book itself has meant a lot to me personally, actually, and came at a very lovely time for me. I, I lost my mother two years ago and actually spend a good bit of time looking at pictures of her when she's young and, and sort of thinking about that life that I didn't, didn't know. Um, her early life was a hard time for her, but there's something about her youthfulness in the in the photos that makes me understand myself in different ways. You write in your intro to the collection that the project was about representing the female experience in all its complexity. How did you come to understand your own mother differently? I, you know, I'm so really sorry about your mom. Oh, thanks. Um, I think that we often don't do that kind of looking back at our parents, unless some large event happens. And I think for a lot of women, it happens when you become a mom, mm. um, because you start to think, I mean, I think everybody who had becomes a parent, mother or father or somewhere in between, you have that moment where you're like, holy shit, somebody did this for me. <laughs> um, and you're kind of, st- I mean, at least I was, I was like, okay, I knew parenting was hard, but like, oh my God, somebody, I was a poor defenseless newborn and now I'm this adult and somebody was there for me in the way that I am there for my child. And so it, it, you start to think about, I start to think about, I should say my mother who became a mother to my sister at age 21. Um, so her life before mother was pretty short. And I just thought, Oh my God, who was that person that was changed? And was she changed in the way that I was changed and what was her shift from regular personhood to parenthood. Um, and I think a parent's passing can also be that moment where you want to, now their life is finished. So they had the narrative is done and you can sort of trace the arc of, of their life. And you obviously want to go back to the beginning before you, and there's some things you will never know. Um, I, I think that started for me when I became a parent. Um, so, you know, looking back at those, you know, I always love looking at people. I mean, everybody likes it, right? To look at old pictures of your parents. Yeah. It's fun. The style is fun. Yeah. The sense of not knowing, kind of matching up the person you know with the person in the photograph. So I always like looking at my mom. She was really, was really hot. She always had cute style. <laughs> um, but it took on this other dimension when I became a parent because I, I, I was like, okay, how can I hold on to my own identity when now that I'm a mother, I, I'm a, being a writer has always been the thing I wanted more than anything in the world. I didn't even know if I wanted to have kids and now I have a kid. So who am I? And then who is my mother? Who was she? Who is she now? And I'm very careful now, especially when I'm interacting with women who are older than me and thinking about them and the culture that they're very often not afforded a full humanity, whether they're parents or not. Um, and really wanting to make sure that I, you know, people say that women after a certain age become invisible. You hear this yeah. a lot. And so really making sure that I see these women, including my own mother, um, just really fully with, you know, clear eyes and letting them be everything that they are, because I want that same humanity for myself as mm-hmm. I age. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a mom and I, that's a I like that role. I, I have three kids. I did it three times. <laughs> I wanted to become a mother. Um, but I also want to make sure that my kids know that I'm other things besides a mother. Um, and so I have to do that for my own mom. And that's, and this project has really helped me do that both for my mother with my mom and also just for all, all women, basically. That's an amazing thing. 
I mean, I'll, I'll stay with the idea of motherhood and say that it is, it's clearly a, an, an issue and a topic that with all of its wonder and agony, um, has been a site of creative inspiration for you in, in your fiction as well. Frida's struggle with maternal love in the ashes of civilization in California, Lady's conflicted relationship to her children and to the ersatz child rearing of her nanny S in Woman Number 17. Motherhood is complicated in your work, as are the mothers themselves, and it drives much of the pathos in these novels. Why do you think it is so key to your creative life? I remember when I was in graduate school, people would always say, you'll write more now than you ever will in your whole life. <clears throat> and that is so untrue. Hmm. I feel like since I've become a mother, I've, I read and write more than I ever have, which doesn't make any sense because I have a lot less time. But I think there has been a drive in me to maybe one, assert the identity that always mattered to me before motherhood. Um, but also I think there's just such it's just such an interesting relationship um, inside the self of I, I am myself and I am also a parent. And how do those two mix um, between a, a child and a parent? I think it's just, oh God, so fascinating to me um, as I kind of navigate these relationships with these three humans who are also different from one another and so different from me. And how do I love them for who they are? And what does that ask of me every day? I'm thinking of this question. Um, and also I just think it obviously motherhood has been a subject that people have been talking about motherhood forever. Um, but I really do think there has been kind of a boom of motherhood literature in the last few years um, where people are like, this is what it's like for me. And it's complicated. It's messy. Um, and I like complicated and messy in my fiction. In my life, I like to, things to be a little bit more easy. <laughs> um, but in my fiction, I really love it. So it makes sense as a fictional topic. And I think in the same way that I'm drawn to write about California, I, I guess I'm drawn to write about my own life. And it's not autobiographical, but it's drawn upon the things that I'm excited about struggling with. And right now I'm in the thick of raising three young kids. So of course all my work would kind of wrestle with that. I want you to uh, record what you said about writing and reading more now and send it to basically every young woman in the country, because I feel like that's <laughs> so not the message that they are given. Um, it certainly wasn't the message the women in my graduate program were given, not my friends in MFA programs, and it, certainly not women in general in this culture. It's mm -hmm. sort of like your life before and the portrait you had of yourself that you were gently and purposefully filling in is now done put it in the attic um and you know forget about it and and i think what you said is uh really a kind of triumphant way to think about motherhood very differently yeah well i remember in graduate school i would always say books this is so i was like 24 i would say books before babies. Hmm. Well, my first book didn't sell and then I had a baby. So I did not publish the first book before I had a baby. And I thought, oh, I'm screwed. My like whole life plan is messed up. Then everything sort of fell into place. And I found these pockets of time to work. And I think I became a more interesting writer because 
I had a child and that's not to say people who don't have kids are less interesting. But for me personally, I felt like I had material. I had a drive that I didn't have before. Now my mantra is don't make babies with someone useless. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you don't, I mean, some people have babies by themselves and do perfectly fine. But I find that the people who struggle a lot are also people who often don't have enough help. Yeah, that, that, that's wonderful. <laughs> Please make a T-shirt of that. I should make a T-shirt. Um, I wanted to ask you, since you you lightly hinted about it, uh, about this um, novel or work uh, that is that is in process, and then it's sort of a two part question. In that, I in in kind of studi- studying your bio a little bit more, I found out that there was an unpublished first novel that was deemed to be too ambitious to be sold, which of course made me want to read it more than anything. Um, so, would you tell us about the the work in progress, and then maybe a, a hint about that that first novel? Sure, I fear that the work in progress has a similar problem as the Burke and The work in progress, I'm revising a book that I've been working on since I remember working on a scene right after Trump won the election. So what is that? Four years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So probably around now is when I started that book four years ago. Um, <clears throat> and it's, it's really kicking my ass, this book. Um, <laughs> I want it both. Um, California woman number 17 people like to point out are very different and content wise, they're extremely different, but they're actually extremely similar as far as structure. Um, they both take place in about six weeks and they, one is in first person, one is in third, but they alternate third to first. I mean, they alternate character from one to the other. They both have two character voices. Um, and so I was just like, I want to write something different. I want to write a bigger book that, I really wanted to write, I've always wanted to write a book that covers a lot of time. Mm. I think that's so fun to read when I always like to joke that five years pass is like the sexiest <laughs> sentence that you could ever write. <laughs> like you could just make five years pass in three words. That's amazing. Amazing power. <laughs> um, so I really wanted to try to write that. This, but <laughs> a big, but is that I set myself a challenge. It's a, it's a, I'm calling it a family saga that has time travel. <laughs> Whoa. So that's, oh, what that's so exciting. If I could go back in time. I would not write a book about time travel because I've never had so many. It's like such a boondoggle with revising a book that plays with time. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Cause time uh, I, is such a troublesome issue anyway in, anyway. in writing. And then if you have time travel, then you're like, where am I now? <laughs> when am I? Um, I'm restructuring the book right now in a way that feels good. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. This book. I mean, it very well might just go in the drawer with the other book that didn't sell. Um, I hope not because I, I want to read it. I hope not too because I've spent a lot of time on it and I really do love the characters. Um, and I'm enjoying working on it so it has some life to it still. But that's what that book is. I liked my, my time travel family saga. So you can see how it plays on a genre element. Yeah. Um, and then the first book, let me tell you, I wrote it over 10 years ago. It's not good. <laughs> you don't want to read it. <laughs> um, it is about, it's called the book of deeds. It's about, it's like a teenage coming of age story about a girl who goes to live with her sister when her parents retire. 
um, so they retire and live in an Airstream trailer in Malibu, so they don't have a room for her, essentially. And she goes to live with her sister, and her sister's, like, predatorial, is that a word? Pre- boyfriend, mm-hmm. who's bad news. Um, and she and her best friend become obsessed with this all-girl rebellion in a factory in the early, I don't remember, maybe the late 1800s in downtown L.A., but I made up the rebellion. It's not real. Um, and so it's sort of about how her obsession with this rebellion like incite, incites all this violence, and she does a lot of bad stuff. Mm. Um, and so it sounds kind of good, I think. Yeah. But, and it, I think it was too ambitious, and it preceded the, like, violent girl i i I don't want to say like i was ahead of my time but i either no you were pre like emma klein's girls way before emma klein sorry emma and (laughs) (laughs) and i really do like girls i think that's a great book yeah it is Uh, good but it was before that and there were a couple other things that came like a few years this was like 2000 I want to say 2009, maybe when I turned to 2010, it was just right before a few stories about like animalistic, violent Mm -hmm. girl. There were a few things like that, that came right a couple years after my book. And I believe that if it had been, if it had been a better book, it would have happened. I would have sold it, but I just think it didn't quite come together in the way that it should have come together. Well, maybe it will be a um, a slightly changed, but perhaps um, returning uh, returning theme in something in the future. Yeah, that would be. what's interesting is I think there are elements of that book you can see in Woman Number Seventeen in a totally different way, but the tone. Mm-hmm. There are little elements of that of those. There's I can I actually not that long ago opened up the document. And I could see how I was just the exact same writer I am now. Like the voice is totally my voice. (laughs) And I could see the lineage of that book and the other book. So I don't feel that I need to put out that book because I think the best parts of it came out in other stories. Are already there. Yeah. Um, So I've become, I've been asking over the last three episodes, the writers and readers that I've been interviewing to identify a genre of literature or a group of texts that they think are underappreciated by way of offering some kind of new and exciting options for at this point, late summer reading. And this could be a subgenre, a single author, or a group of novels and stories that you think everybody needs to get their hands on. So where do you want to send us in our late summer reading? (laughs) I think that there needs to be a big wider appreciation for the writing of Carolyn C. Have you ever read her? Mm -mm. See, she was well known for a long time and sort of her daughter Lisa, is Lisa C. Um, and she oh, writes about yeah. C in Mothers Before. Yeah. Um, and Lisa C is my mom's favorite writer. And Lisa C's mother is my favorite writer. Mm. Um, but Carolyn C. So she was well known as like a Southern California novelist. She died, um, I want a few years ago, I want to say like seven years ago. She was a big critic for the Washington Post for a long time. So she was in the world of letters. And I don't, think like I think a lot of her books are print on demand now I don't think she's had the renaissance that she really deserves um her most famous book is called golden days and it's a totally wackadoo book about an apocalypse I didn't read it until after California came out people kept saying oh your work is like I could see it's in the tradition of golden days I had never read this Mm. book so of course I had to read it um I think she's a 
she's I'm not she's brilliant and I'm just fine um (laughs) it's a book about a single mom a lot of her books are about single women who've gone through like a bad divorce and have money from that marriage or grew up with some money and then that book she and her daughters live in Topanga Canyon and they go to this awful private school where everyone's really racist and worried about crime um and it sort of devolves it's sort of scary because at first it's just kind of this Slice of Night, Life, L.A., early 80s novel. And then things are really starting to degrade. And at the end, there's a nuclear event. Hmm. Um, and the end of the world happens, pretty much. But then there's another 30 pages. Um, and what she does with kind of the end of the world and this idea of renewal. And what would happen if your whole, all of your skin had kind of like charred off basically oh. and but you were still alive and oh, how would change? you suddenly wouldn't be worried about like these assemblies at the private school and hmm. these like white bitches on the west side which is really what the half, first half of the book is or the first two-thirds um so that's just an amazing example of what that genre can do and how you can kind of upend it and all of her other books i haven't read them all i'm kind of like <clears throat> savoring them but she has a lot of messed up mother-daughter relationships um, she has a book about called the handyman. That's about an artist who becomes a handyman and kind of gets embroiled in all his client's life. And it takes on the AIDS crisis in 1980s LA. And I don't know, she's a little bit like Nora Ephron in her, like, I feel like in the early eighties, there were all these women writers who had this kind of like very voicey, like Bobby Ann Mason sort of like, very voicey, first person, sassy comic. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. It's very of the time, and I think she's in that tradition, and she's just so good. And just not a lot of people read her anymore. The only people I know who are really into her are people who are like my parents' age, who were living in LA at that time. Those are the and who are like extremely well read. You know that I feel like she really needs to like a New York Times, New York Review of Books redo you know it sounds like it and it sounds like maybe something that their imprint would want to grab up her her out of print novels and give them give them new life maybe with you as uh the writing the critical introduction that would be (laughs) i'm I'm available give me a call (laughs) um well i'm one of the things i've been doing is putting all the the recommendations on the podcast website but also linking them to the to the interviewees um sort of favorite bookstores so that people could buy them directly from from indies do you have a bookstore too that you maybe would like us to link to Yes, of course. Probably. I always say book soup because that's where I worked. It's where I met my husband. (laughs) I always say it was my second college degree working there. Yeah, well, that absolutely. I don't know. Where in L.A. is it? Book soup is in. It's not the bookstore that I go to normally now because it's not in my. I usually go to Romans and Pasadena or Skylight and Los Feliz. But book soup is in West Hollywood, right? Excuse me, right on the Sunset Strip. And when I worked there, they were open every day of the year until midnight. Oh, wow. Working the closing shift was something special. (laughs) Trippy, I'm sure. Well, Eden, it has been such a delight to talk to you, and I'm really grateful that you you got up and and were uh, able to chat with us about such a great range of things. Thank you for all your great questions and very thoughtful. I really, really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks to Eden Lepucky for sitting down with me for such a rich and wide-ranging talk. And I'll end this episode with some, some residual gratefulness for last episode's interview with Kevin Wilson. In our conversation, he recommended the writer Marcy Dermansky, listing her novel Bad Marie as an inspiration for his own novel Nothing to See Here, and as one of his all-time favorite short novels. Well, I'm here to tell you that you should be reading Marcy Dermansky. I gobbled up Bad Marie, who is, as suggested, quite bad, but bad in the way that bad girls are forced to wear the scarlet letters for the terrible decisions of the men they are involved with. It's a consuming short novel that, you, that can be digested in two sittings, but which lasts with you. Marie's badness made me realize that I need to do a show on women characters behaving badly and how feminism has allowed us to move beyond the fallen women in the likes of Tess of the D'Urbervilles and the House of Mirth to the strength and ingenuity of characters like Lillian and Bad Marie. Well, that's all for me for now. Look out for forthcoming episodes on innovative models for running bookstores and interviews with writers, bookstore owners, and literary critics. This has been Burned by Books. Mm -hmm.